Blooming Lotus Yoga presents Drops of Nectar with Ramananda Mayi. In this podcast, we share the profound wisdom of yoga, tantra, and Vedanta so that you may deepen your understanding of the Dharma and live a more fulfilling, awakened, and compassionate life. You're all so adorable, Namaste. I think that's how it feels like. <laughs> so, it seems like we're doing pretty good for, for, for day six, is it? Wow. Seems like we've been here for an hour now. Um, yeah, so, um, tonight, uh, this will be my last, my last session with you. Tomorrow we'll break our silence after Yoga Nidra. And then the evening, we're just gonna not do any formal um, uh, like, uh, lesson like we're doing right now, and we'll just only meditate in silence. And this will give you a little bit of time just to begin the process of extroversion, and just to get to know each other a little better, make some friends, get to know your sangha, get to you know meet all these beautiful people that have been just like floating through your reality for the last last few days, so it should be quite lovely. If you've never done a silent meditation retreat before, um, you don't actually know what just happened to you. So as you begin the process of extroversion and you leave this little bubble world that we're in right now, and you, you know, engage with the normal world out there, you're going to notice that initially there may be a little bit of shock in terms of just how different the paradigm you're living in is compared to the paradigm of most other human beings that are just in a totally distracted, you know, way of life. They're just living through the senses and not really as calm or as clear or as slow, as peaceful as you are. So you have to take the process very slowly. So what we recommend is definitely tomorrow, you know, allow yourself to begin the process of extroversion. Um, You've been holding all your energy in for so long, and that's been very beneficial. But after we begin the process of kind of coming out of this this bubble of ours, we're going to develop some compassion um, techniques, just practicing basic loving-kindness type of techniques, and you'll find that these really open the heart and, and shift the mindset a little bit so that as you begin to express in a more normal way, that all of these beautiful, you know, like expressions of your divine nature will begin to become more apparent, and you'll begin to see just how you know, how, how beautiful you really are and how beautiful you can really express in the world. And that is very, very helpful to do in the company of somebody who also feels the same. Yeah. When we try to mix and match a little bit and we take kind of this bhava, this mood that we're in, this, this kind of like, you know, deep, deep, deep state that we're in, and then we introduce that to the rest of the world that's a little bit more on the superficial level, sometimes there can be just a little bit of friction. Initially, depending on the level of compassion that you've developed, this, 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 this contact with the normal world can be a little bit shocking, a little bit like sudden, and a little bit like, uh, 
the fact that people like really live in these ways that are just like not so so healthy, not really benefiting themselves, not really being of much benefit to others. And you know, outside in the world people are like smoking and they're drinking and they're cheating each other and you know the taxi drivers are trying to hustle people for money and this going on and that's going on. And when you come out of this state of just like inner purity and you come into contact with that can be a little bit jarring. So generally we tell you, the next two days after you leave here, if you can and you have the luxury, go slow. Right? If you have to get in the airplane, that's different. You're just gonna have to <laughs> just, just like throw yourself into the fire and, and you know, be in that fire for a little bit. Um, but if you do have the luxury just to take things slow, definitely. I highly recommend it that you, you know, just find a nice little bungalow somewhere, a little, you know, whatever you like to stay in. And then just, you know, spend spend time definitely engaging in the world, going here, going there. But make sure you give yourself just a little bit of downtime every day. Just an hour here, an hour there throughout the day rather than like go, go, go. Experience, experience, experience. Because, you know, you're in a different country and you want to go shopping and you want to taste new foods and you want to go here, go there. You know, see waterfalls and climb volcanoes and all that. By all means, do that. But make sure that you take that process a little bit slowly. And better that you do all of those activities, not at the same time. Because <laughs> you've been kind of holding it all in. And you have know, these desires that are building up, right? So you're going to want, the mind is going to want to have all of them as soon as possible. So just give them a little bit of space. Give yourself a little bit of space and just create some gaps in the day. Where right? if nothing else, you do some yoga nidra. Nothing else, you sit down and you meditate for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Obviously, if you can, longer is much better. But, you know, whatever your capacity is. Some of you have been here for nearly 40 days. And this is very, very phenomenal, particularly if you're a beginner. Very rare for a beginner to be able to sustain 40 days of such intense yogic lifestyle. So just go really, really slow. Just take, take, take good care of yourself and then this will, will pay off tremendously. Then the energy that you've accumulated won't dissipate so fast. It'll just kind of dissipate a little bit more gradually and this won't be so startling to the, to the experience of, of coming back into the normal world. So there was a question somebody had, I think earlier today, and somebody was asking a question about how to really work with this thing we call the drishti. Drishti means like an inner gaze, like taking the mind's eye and directing it somewhere. When you normally just close the eyes and you cut off the sense of sight, there's still some vision is there. There's still like some blank, dark kind of space that you, that you exist in. And the process of drishti is taking that attention of the, of the mind's eye and then directing it somewhere, localized typically within the body-mind. Often the third eye is used when we just ask people to maintain your awareness in this area in between the eyebrows, or if you prefer, in, in the center of the chest. Now, for some people this is very straightforward and very easy. For some people it can be a little bit more challenging because they try to do it, but it's hard necessarily to sustain the awareness there because the awareness wants to dissipate sometimes. And it's fine, actually, to meditate without a drishti if you feel like, particularly if you're using formless meditation. So if you're doing like self-inquiry and things like this, trying to hold the awareness and direct awareness isn't usually as beneficial as allowing awareness just to, to do itself and to go wherever it wants to and you just to be aware that awareness is, is, is free. 
And when your awareness is free, this is, this is uh, better in the path of self-inquiry and we do wisdom-based practices. However, if we are working on the level of Ashtanga Yoga, building concentration and working towards these meditative absorptions, it becomes very helpful to keep a drishti, keep your gaze focused inwardly in one location within the body and then to, to also add the adjunct of your meditation object, like your breath. So either your awareness is, let's say, in the third eye, and you're watching the breath here, and you're feeling the flow of inhale through the body, but you're feeling the subtle flow, prana, and you're kind of just keeping all of your attention in this area. Or, alternately, you're watching the breath, and you're keeping your awareness in the center of the chest. It's as simple as it gets. If your meditation object is mantra, then the same thing. You just keep your attention here. You always work on establishing the drishti first. It doesn't take more than like five to ten seconds. Just begin to like hold or, or direct the awareness here. Let it just temporarily stabilize just for a little bit. And then begin, you know, uh, focusing on the breath or focusing on a mantra or any other technique that you're using, or alternately inside the heart. Now, whenever the gaze wanders, and you kind of feel like you've kind of lost focus, then again, just like all meditation techniques, you, you rinse and repeat. You, you start the process all over again, just as if you were just to start again. And even if this starting is like only five seconds later, you know, you bring the awareness once more to the third eye, you bring awareness once more to the mantra, for example, and you hold both simultaneously. You're keeping the attention here, and you're also keeping the mantra chanting going on. And then once the mantra stops, and you're just focusing on the silence, you're focusing on the sounds, but also keeping the gaze in this area. So hopefully that was clear. If you're watching the breath, then the breath is constantly ongoing. So because the breath is constantly going, you're going to not need to alternate between like mantra chanting and silence, right? The breath is just kind of always, always ongoing, and then the attention will always stay here. There'll be times when the gaze wanders, and then you bring the gaze back. There'll be times when the gaze is there, but the awareness of mantra, uh, sorry, the awareness of the breath is gone, and then you bring the, the breath back. Typically, they tend to disperse together. So you'll lose the gaze and you lose the breath kind of simultaneously. And that's totally fine, absolutely natural. And the moment you become aware that you're kind of in this distracted, mindless, absent-minded kind of state, never take that to be a, a, an obstacle in your practice. The very fact that you've now become aware, that's the key. So losing awareness and then recalling awareness that is, is very, very, very beneficial. So the very fact that you become aware and you've been able to redirect awareness to, to the object of concentration is a very positive sign of progress. Strangely enough, most of us think it's not a sign of progress, so distracted, distracted. If you're so distracted for like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you remember, then, you know, then we need to work a little bit more with pranayama, typically, more pranayama. And if you find that you're distracted for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, before you go, oh wow, just supposed to be watching the breath, watching the breath here, or watching the breath there, then typically, rather than going back to the breath, like natural breath, better you, you come back to pranayama. You kind of go back a step, 
and spend five minutes with Ujjayi Pranayama. If you're really distracted, also start the entire sequence of alternate nostril breathing and then go back. That kind of boost of Pranayama will help concentrate you and will make the, the gaps between mindfulness of the object and mindlessness, forgetfulness of the object of meditation, uh, less lengthy. Yeah. If, if you're just kind of watching the breath and you can come and you lose the breath and that loss is recognized within like 20 or 30 seconds, that's wonderful. You're making very good progress. If that loss is like more than two minutes, you can, that's still fine. Just come back to the natural breath. If that loss is for more than five minutes, then you're going to have to gauge. I, am I concentrating enough to really go into the object of meditation with the breath or the mantra? Or should I maybe go back and just do a couple minutes of pranayama or five minutes of pranayama so I can get more concentrated again and then go back to the object of meditation? If the lapse is like more than five minutes, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, usually a good idea. Just take some deep breaths. Yeah? Concentrate the mind. Work with prana. Prana and awareness are like two sides of the same coin two wings of the same bird. By, by working with prana, you're harnessing the power of attention. And this is the principle of Ashtanga Yoga. You work with prana as a means to indirectly influence awareness and to summon awareness, to invoke awareness. Whereas in the wisdom path, jnana yoga path, you work with wisdom directly without trying to control, without trying to modify the prana, the subtle energy, in any way whatsoever. And you'll notice as a byproduct of working with awareness, the prana will become stable, will become quiet, will become very motionless automatically without you needing to try to restrain it. Yeah. So, so these are these are two different kinds of approaches to meditation. One is like manipulating and changing the breath, changing the energy, restricting, restraining, in order to invoke awareness indirectly, and then the other is to directly harness the power of awareness and then let the prana do whatever the prana wants to do, and not try to restrict it or contain it in any way. Just let it run freely, let it move of its own accord, and simply draw awareness to wherever the prana wants to go, wherever the attention wants to go. And the more you're just simply aware of whatever phenomenon is arising within you, whatever phenomenon you come into contact with through the senses, or whatever phenomenon you come in through with the, with the mind itself, when the senses are introverted, it, it doesn't really matter. We use all phenomenon as a means to recognize the we're aware aware of sound, aware of, of smell, aware of taste, uh, aware of thought, aware of desire, aware of memory, aware of fantasy, aware of like, aware of dislike. It doesn't matter. Positive, negative thoughts, they're all utilized. And the second you recognize that you're undergoing that experience, that's the sign of progress. You become aware that you're having that experience rather than blindly reacting to that experience, which is happening on a deep subconscious level that you have no conscious awareness of. So drawing conscious awareness into all phenomena is very, very, very beneficial. And then nothing obstructs the practice. Then you can meditate on everything and anything, anywhere, right? So that nothing, nothing is considered taboo, nothing is considered bad, nothing is considered to be a distraction. Everything is brought into the practice of mindfulness. So it's a little bit more advanced, takes a little bit of getting used to. Usually we need to go 
through the shtanga model, like this gradual purification model of the mind. And then after some time, we get used to this more formless, abstract kind of way of meditating without meditating. <laughs> we, we call it like the yoga of non-meditation, yeah, where the primary instructions are when you reach a certain stage on the journey is to not meditate. Like stop meditating. Just sit there. But don't meditate. <laughs> It's really, it's when you begin to hit like the laws of divine paradox, where you just, it's, there's no effort that, that is required because true meditation isn't an activity. You can't, you can't do meditation. Meditation is a state of being. So any effort is doing, and every effort is contrary to real meditation. But to be prepared for that, we need to develop concentration. So that's why in Sri Vidya we have many approaches. We usually work on this gradual model of Raja Yoga and Ashtanga Yoga building up to concentration. And then when somebody has just a, a certain amount of concentration, we can begin to shift gears and change the instructions and help them go deeper and remove some subtle, subtle obstacles they're having in their, in their meditation practice. So, when we're talking about the wisdom techniques, and we're talking about the wisdom path in Sri Vidya, this basically is using the model of Jnana Yoga. So when we talk about wisdom, the Sanskrit word is Jnana, it means wisdom. And this is the yoga of wisdom, or the path of wisdom, or the way of wisdom. It's known as Jnana Yoga. Within the entire Vedic Dharma, the Dharma is given by the rishis of, of, of the Vedic tradition, um, and there are many different ways of approaching wisdom, many, many different techniques, many different practices, many different philosophies are available to us. But in Sri Vidya, our particular approach to the wisdom path is technically called Advaita Vedanta. Many different kinds of Vedanta exist. You may have heard of this word. There's dualistic forms of Vedanta. There's non-dual forms of Vedanta. There's things that are mixed, a little bit non-dual, a little bit dual. And our school is non-dual. We follow the Advaita Vedanta system, and this is our flavor, our philosophical base for our wisdom practices. And those wisdom practices are under the larger umbrella of Jnana Yoga. One can develop jnana, or wisdom, outside the boundaries of Advaita Vedanta, or even outside the, the, the boundaries of Vedanta itself. One can be practicing the Samkhya philosophy and be developing the, the complementary practices, which are known as Ashtanga Yoga, the Yoga of Patanjali and other Ashtanga uh, Yoga sages, and gain wisdom through the meditative absorptions, the jnana states. And Sri Vidya can also work at that level. But when we're talking about developing wisdom, most of the time we're using the Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual Vedanta model. And the sages that we follow and the teachings of the sages that we follow are typically along the lines of, of Vashishta Maharshi, a great sage by the name of Adi Shankara, and more recently Ramana Maharshi. They were all Sri Vidya practitioners, and they all taught the Advaita Vedanta. So whenever we find their names, whenever we find their works, or their commentaries on the Vedas, or their commentaries on the Upanishads, then we can know that, oh, we found Sri Vidya. We found the Advaita, the non-dual teachings of Sri Vidya. Now, 
Vedanta itself is a reference to a certain part of the Indian scriptures known as the Upanishads. Each Veda has four different parts. There's four Vedas, and each Veda has four different parts. They have a, a part that's associated with the, the invocation of celestial beings that are known as devas, light beings. These are known as the suptums. Then they have a process whereby they can learn how to invoke the, the devas using ritual and ceremony and things of this manner. These are known as brahmanas. And then each Veda also has a teachings called Aranyakas, which are like, they call them forest. Aranyaka means forest, and Aranyaka means like teachings for those that live in the forest. It's kind of like a reference to people that are more like living a life of retreat and practicing more deeper yoga and contemplation. So the Aranyakas have a wide variety of subject matter, but they're teaching more deeper spiritual matters of yoga and inner inner liberation. And then each of the of the four Vedas has a final portion which is called the end of that Veda. The Veda Anta. Anta means the end. So the end of each of the four Vedas is called the Veda Anta, the Vedanta. And the end portions are called the Upanishads. So the word Upanishad equals Vedanta. They're synonyms. You can't talk about the end of the Vedas without referencing directly the Upanishads. So when we when we study the Upanishads, we're studying Vedanta. When we're studying Vedanta, we're studying the teachings of the Upanishads. You can't uh, ever separate those two things. Those are just that's just how it works. There's many different ways of interpreting the the Upanishads, aka ways of interpreting the Vedanta. One of them is using this non-dual methodology of Ashishta, of Adi Shankara, of Ramana Maharshi, and other great sages, many, many other great sages. The, classically, we have 108 different Upanishads that we can study. It's a very, very vast study of 108 Upanishads, and very, very few people on planet Earth have ever studied all 108 Upanishads, because it's not necessary to study all of them. That study is usually reserved for like scholars or swamis or people that are a little bit more scholastic, academic, and they want to know like the really like the deep philosophy of the Vedas. But typically, as sadhaks, so just people that are practicing yoga and meditation and aren't so interested in the philosophy and just want the, the practical benefits to begin to manifest in our lives. We don't need to study Vedanta, but if we do, typically one or two Upanishads will suffice. We don't need to learn all of them. And out of all the Upanishads I've ever looked at, I haven't looked at all 108, but I've looked at enough, and they're difficult, very, very not easy. They're coming from like thousands of years ago. You know, so the language pattern is very, very hard to understand. And they're, they're often encoded. It's not like they're, they're, they're clear. It's not like reading a book where it's like sentences. They're all in sutra format. And even when you can understand the meaning of the words, uh, it's encoded. It's secret. So you have to like know this mystical code of like these scrambling that was like passwords. It's like hacking into the brain of a rishi and trying to figure out what are you talking about? You know, so very, very difficult, and very few people know how to do that, right? It's, it's very, very difficult to decode the Vedas, and it's not really something that's documented, and it's not something that's really, like, taught 
even through oral tradition, the only way that happens actually mystically, when you enter into these dhyana states and, and samadhi states even, something happens inside the brain. You have access to, to divine knowledge. So when you then pick up the Upanishads, it's possible to understand their deep meaning and their encoded secret message without anybody explaining it to you. But that state of higher consciousness is the prerequisite. So it cracks the password essentially to give you access to them. Most Upanishads tend to be like this. Very few teachers that even teach the Upanishads know the real secrets of Upanishads. They only understand them from a the surface level. So many different layers of each Upanishad. Now, even though it might sound a little bit overwhelming, the good news is, is I found I found a few Upanishads that are, are quite clear and quite concise and aren't really very deeply encoded. Most of their message is very transparent and it's not so secret. If you just kind of have a few basic tools at your disposal, you can basically understand the deep meaning that's there, as well as the practical technique that they're outlining to have the, the realization of the non-dual, uh, of what they call Brahman, which is the absolute reality, which is the subject matter of the Vedas and the subject matter of the Upanishads. So what I'd like to introduce you today is one particular Upanishad. It's known as the Amrita Bindu, Amrita Bindu Upanishad. Very short Upanishad, only 22 verses. And I have a feeling that if we discuss it, you know, in brief, you'll begin to get a flavor of the Upanishads, maybe begin to develop a love for this kind of thing. And if nothing else, you'll, 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 you'll learn something on your yogic journey. It's very rare. Rare to sit down with somebody and have somebody talk about Upanishads and, and help you understand what's inside them. Something every yogi should get to enjoy as much as possible. So. I'd like to share this with you and then we'll see if we can even use the message there and see if in any way it corresponds to our own practices and our own meditation as we've been experiencing the last few days and see if it sheds light and helps us understand how to meditate um, and more clearly. So let's begin. The Upanishad starts in a dualistic tone. So it's going to take the position that you are feeling that you are a limited being and living in an objective universe with all these different objects and people and places and events that you feel to be distinct and separate from and you are in some way suffering because of this illusion and you're looking for a remedy to your, to your, to your deluded state and you're seeking clarity, you're seeking wisdom and with that dualistic base it gradually progresses us and tries to help us understand the non-dual helps us understand that we actually aren't this limited mortal being that we believe ourselves to be undergoing the experience of change and undergoing the experience of samsara, of suffering, but we're actually already in nirvana and that we're actually already free. We just need to have a shift of perspective as it were. So the Amrita Bindu Panasha. Amrita means nectar and Bindu means like a point, point of nectar. This is in reference to the center point of the Sri Yantra. This mystical diagram has a center known as the Bindu. And when we study the Upanishad, the nectar-like meaning, that gives you the sense of happiness and joy and bliss from within, this nectar of divine knowledge, will, will, will possibly become a reality for you. So it begins by saying that the mind is of two kinds. We have the pure mind, and then we have the impure mind. The impure mind is that which is possessed of attachment. And the pure mind is that which is free from desires. 
It's a very, very common message we find in Eastern philosophy. And you may have heard it a million times before, but in the last few days of meditation, I feel like many of you are beginning to understand that. And when the mind is just so deeply attached to the objects of the world, and doesn't value stillness, doesn't value silence, doesn't value meditation, in the inner life, you're prone to more negative thoughts. Negative emotions proliferate in that distracted state of sensory, you know, overwhelm, where you're constantly seeking happiness from the objects of the world, from the people, the places, the events of the world. And when you drop some of that, and you begin to look inside, and you begin to maintain awareness inside for some length of time, the mind undergoes this purification, and the pure aspect of the mind begins to reveal itself to you. And in this state, you generally feel more ease, more calm, more peace. So this is an experience I think many of you are now familiar with, what the impure mind looks like and what the pure mind can look like. Mind that is possessed of heavy attachments, and the mind that is, is more free from, from these heavy attachments, has less desires, is more just content to just be as it is in, in the present moment without feeling this yearning, this need for satisfaction from the outside in, and is realizing that this happiness is innate, it's a natural phenomenon, it's a natural expression of the pure mind. So this is the beginning. And the second verse says, It is indeed the mind that is the cause of bondage and the cause of liberation. The mind that is attached to the outer objects leads itself to bondage, while non-attachment to the objects or the senses leads it to liberation. This is very straightforward here. So liberation, moksha, nirvana, as well as its counterpart, bondage, dukkha, sorrow, suffering, what we call samsara, they're both inside the mind. All matters on how you see the world and how you see yourself. Yeah, it's said here that the mind that does not know what it is, does not know its natural pristine state of just pure being, and is attached to the outer objects of the world, leads itself into bondage, leads itself into misery, leads itself to, to getting caught in the cycles of change and beginning to value those things that are unreal, that are transitory and permanent, and somehow we get this distorted view that they somehow are permanent and, and they're enduring, and then by having them, I can find lasting fulfillment and lasting happiness. But nature is not such because nothing in the objective reality ever stays the same for long. It's always changing. Always changing has no capacity to give you lasting fulfillment. While understanding this clearly and not having any clinging, not having any need to feel happiness from the outside in, from the objects of the senses, helps you realize that, you, that your natural state is self-liberated. Yeah. And when you stop seeking happiness, and you just see what you already have, rather than yearning constantly for that which you don't have, that which you feel like you are missing, see what it feels like to see what you actually do have. And just come back to the present moment and see what's already here.
and see how that makes you feel. This great relief is here. Yeah, it's like that what you were seeking that what you're looking for has revealed itself because you've stopped clinging to something else. You're no longer looking for that which you don't have. Then you're coming into acceptance that what I do have is completely natural to me, just simply being here as I am. It's enough. And there's nothing more that is really necessary. There's nothing more that you can have that will give you more fulfillment, or more happiness, or more joy, or more bliss. That what is already natural to you, it's already innate within you. Since liberation requires a mind that is devoid of desire, the mind should be made free of all attachments by the seeker of liberation. So this is again another normal teaching that we hear in most, you know, most dualistic teachings, that it's really the mind, right? And we need to be able to direct the mind and restrict the mind and make it free of attachments. Now, easier said than done. But this is the path and this is the, the, the gradual progression of yoga, whereby temporarily, in order to come back into our natural state, we need to restrain the mind. This kind of restraint you don't need to try to think of as like something you need to do all the time. It's, it's just something, just a little bit of effort towards, just a little bit of exertion to restrain the mind from its outward going tendencies into the sensory phenomenon of the world. If you can just restrain it for just a little bit, that's enough to have your awareness return back to its natural state. And then once in this natural state, effort is, is not necessary. Yeah. The effort to restrain the mind isn't really necessary. The effort to maintain awareness, that, that's one way we can talk about it, but the effort to restrain the mind and to prevent desires from arising isn't necessary. And if you try to, to make that happen, you're going to be creating friction inside yourself. All we need to do is restrain the mind just for a little bit until we can come back into the present moment and see what is always here, just pure awareness. And then let go of trying to hold on. Let go of trying to control the mind. And just simply stay aware, stay mindful. No matter what the mindfulness is of, irrelevant. Use everything that awareness comes into contact with as a base for which you can recognize that I'm aware and simultaneously develop equanimity, detachment. Become aware that you're aware of that object, but no need to cling to it, no need to hold on to it. That's optional. And the more you cling, the more you hold on, the more you'll see that the happiness that you're feeling begins to dissipate. Yeah. So the longer you can stay in your natural state, the greater the sensation of, of happiness, of joy will really become. No need to try to cling to anything, and no need to try to restrain the mind from touching all sorts of objects of the world, 
sensory phenomena, as well as things that may be occurring through the inner landscape, like your thoughts, your emotions. Don't try to resist them, don't try to restrain them. Simply, whenever the mind touches them, just go, I'm aware. Without words, without needing to, to say the words, just recognize. When the mind, with its attachments for objects, is firmly made to be attentive within the heart, it realizes its own essence, and thus the natural state is realized. So here they're giving the first technique. First, the first a little bit of philosophy was there about how to work with the mind. Now they're talking about technique. Making the mind firm inside the heart. Firmly attentive within the sacred space of the heart. So this doesn't need to be just here. It could be almost anywhere. In this case, they're using the heart. So this is what I was talking about earlier, about this trishti. So if you find it helpful while you're maintaining mindfulness to also focus at the level of the heart, perfectly acceptable. And if you find it helpful that when you're slightly distracted, slightly absent-minded, slightly forgetful of your natural state, Sometimes just becoming aware of the sensations within the area of the heart, center of the chest, are a trigger. And they're a way of coming back into a state of mindfulness. And if you allow the, the mind to drop into the heart, you begin to have this taste of the essence of your of being. This isn't an exercise that's done outside you know, the, the context of being present. So you can't do this in the past, and you can't try to imagine what this will be like when you do it later. You actually have to take what is being taught and apply it to yourself right now. See what happens when I drop my mind into the heart. And see what that feels like. Then you don't need to try to keep the, the mind there. You don't need to force the mind to stay in the heart. No restraint is needed. And just that little contact is made. Just a little bit of contact and then awareness. Now, for yogi, the mind and the prana should only be controlled to the extent to which they become merged in the heart. This is realization and true meditation. All else is said to be full of concepts and ideas. So the mind and the prana. This effort to come back to the natural state is not a very, very prolonged effort. It doesn't take a lot of time. You should only try to restrain the mind and to restrain the breath if you need to, if you're working with, with the breath as a way to develop mindfulness, only to a small degree. Only to the point where they bring the awareness back into the present moment. Second, you're in the present moment. There's no need to try to control anymore. No need to try to exert your will anymore. The entire rest of the practice of meditation is about letting go letting go of mental constructs and ideas, then forcing the mind and trying to train it and trying to, to manipulate it to do something that you want it to do. 
only the extent that is necessary is just enough to bring the mind and the breath, if you're working with the breath, into the, the feeling of what it feels like to rest in the heart. Once awareness is at rest in the heart, then let it rest. Don't try to control it in any way. Just let it be free. Let awareness be free. Don't try to channel it. Don't try to concentrate. Don't try to hold on. See what it's like just to completely let go. So we're only exercising the power of concentration, the power of focusing our mind, focusing our breath, only to this extent that, the, that everything just drops into the heart. Once awareness is in the heart, no need to work with the mind, no need to work with the breath, no need to try to control. Just simply be as you are. This natural state of unified awareness, unity, is neither to be thought of as something pleasant to be gained, nor to be considered something external to oneself. It is to be regarded as the essence of one's own self, eternally self-aware and full of bliss. That pure consciousness which is free from all distinctions and separation is realized by this view. So now they're helping us establish what, what the Buddha called the right view. What is this right view on reality? So this happiness that you're seeking, which we call its natural state of unity, or, or being in your natural state, or, or being united with the divine, um, whatever way we think of it, it's not something that you can gain, not something that is some blissful experience that you'll get sometime in the distant future. Yeah, the natural state of unity, the very meaning of the word yoga, to be in a state of union, is something that you are actually experiencing all the time. You're just simply not aware of it. So we need to create this um, shift in attitude, this shift in perception, and begin to help you see that what you're looking for, you already have. But this enlightenment is not an attainment. It's not something you can get in any way, but it's something that is an ever-present, enduring reality within yourself. And it has never been different from you. You have never been separate from it because of the essence of what you actually are. That which you call the self is nothing but awareness nothing but consciousness. And to become aware that you are consciousness, that's enough. Just maintain your awareness as consciousness. Not conscious of this or conscious of that, but just pure consciousness. Simply witnessing moment after moment after moment 
Maintain your presence of mind. One should practice concentration on the sacred sound of both with the qualities of its sound and the silence from which it emerges. Reflection upon silence reveals the nature of both ignorance and wisdom. So here they're also referencing the practice that we use, meditating on a mantra. You can take any mantra you like, the same principle will apply, but if you just simply choose the mantra Om, then this is a passage that helps us understand how to work with that. So if you choose meditation when you're sitting for your daily meditation practice and you're just needing to focus and concentrate the mind and you choose to use a mantra, you can just simply chant the sound OM externally if you like, but better is internally. And you chant it a number of times and then once you've finished the chanting, you listen to the silence that follows. And by listening to silence, this will draw your awareness back into your natural state. Because the natural state is silent. Its fundamental quality is silence. We don't need to seek out silence. But silence is just the natural unfoldment of being, being present. The more you're in silence, you've been in silence for many days now, external silence has been there, but there's been moments within these last few days, even if they're very brief, where, where just temporarily there was nothing, nothing chaotic inside, there's no agitation, there's no mental chatter, there's no noise inside, no inner dialogue for some length of time, even for a few seconds. And in those moments, the nature of wisdom and the nature of ignorance begins to reveal itself. And we begin to see what it's like to live in an ignorant state. And we also begin to learn to see what it's like to live in a state full of wisdom, where we have deep insight into the very workings of our mind and the very workings of reality itself. This silence alone is pure consciousness without separation, pain, nor ignorance. Realizing that I am that, pure consciousness reveals itself as your natural state. So silence, your natural state, consciousness, these are all synonyms for one another. They indicate the exact same experience. And the longer you're able to maintain your awareness in the present moment, the longer you're able to be aware of awareness itself, the more and more spaciousness is going to develop within the mind and the thoughts are going to slowly begin to unravel and you'll begin to notice significant spaces, significant gaps in between thoughts. And that's another approach to meditation. If you're at a stage in your life where thought isn't so, so rapid, there are ways of meditating, Vedic meditation techniques, that help us, instead of focusing on the gap in between the breaths, can help us focus on the gap in between thoughts. And meditating on the gap in between thoughts, aka silence, reveals the natural state. 
This natural state is without doubt. It's free of concepts and ideas, beyond thought, beyond emotion. It is causeless. It purely exists. Knowing it, the wise one is set free. So within it, all mental activity is allowed to continue, but there are definitely significant moments of mindfulness where simply the, the mental chatter has temporarily subsided. And this is when there's experiences of, of having no doubt, having no concepts and ideas about liberation or freedom or, or the nature of reality. It's beyond thoughts, beyond emotions. Now, within the natural state, it's not like these things don't occur, it is simply the identification with them is not so strong. So when thoughts do arise, they're just simply not uh, held on to for any real length of time. They're just used, a ba used as a base for further insight. They're used as a base for further awareness. So whatever is happening to you at any given moment, while practicing mindfulness, presence of mind, moment to moment awareness, whatever arises, whether it be thoughts or ideas or concepts, anything that arises, you use that to recognize that I am aware. And you don't cling. Thoughts and ideas are allowed to be here. It's the clinging, it's the holding, it's the lack of detachment that generates and perpetuates the samsara and perpetuates this unnatural mode of interacting with, with reality. So we want to begin to, to let go of all that. And as soon as you use any method, dropping into the heart, chanting the sound OM, restraining the mind temporarily, restraining the prana temporarily by focusing on the breath, using any of those tools as an adjunct to mindfulness, then know that once you've kind of come back into your natural state, that this state itself is uncaused. There's actually nothing you really did to make the natural state. It did not originate from any action that you took because it was always here. So it's said to be causeless, said to be unborn, ajata, has no origin because it was never created, and it will never dissolve, it will never end. It's beyond the confines of time, it's beyond the confines of space, it's beyond the confines of causality, beyond the confines of karma, and karma is known as cause and effect. But this natural, pure awareness that is of the nature of your, the essence of what you are, is causeless. And for this, they, 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 they mention this. It purely exists, it always has, and always will. By knowing it, by knowing awareness, the wise one is set free. And at the moment you're here, you're no longer really fundamentally in bondage. You're not really fundamentally suffering in any real way. When you're fully present, negative thoughts, negative emotions aren't natural to you. And because of the absence of, of negative thought, negative emotion, the bondage, the sorrow, the suffering born 
of negativity is not to be experienced. When you're present, you're free. When you're distracted, you're stuck. The highest truth is that in this natural state, there's no concept of needing to control the mind, needing to try to control the prana, because you don't have the concept of being bound or of being liberated. You just simply are, and that simply is. Just here, you're free, you're spontaneous, and the idea of becoming freer, of being more liberated, is nonsense. It's not something you can have more of. The natural state is yourself. You can't be more you than you already are. The idea of liberation and the idea of bondage are both within the mind. You drop the ideas, there's no bondage, there's no liberation, and all that's left is what you already are, and that itself is freedom. And you realize you actually aren't really bound, and you never really were. You just thought you were. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, somebody told you there's this thing called samsara and sorrow and suffering. And then they told you there's an escape from the samsara and sorrow and suffering. It's called nirvana or bliss or God or this or that. And then you began to yearn for the opposite of the sorrow and suffering. But neither of those two things fundamentally ever touched you. You as pure consciousness, you as just the witnessing state, are fundamentally unaffected by the ups and downs of the mind. So the moment you drop the mind, you're fundamentally free, but this freedom isn't in terms of like a liberation that you're going to have, but a liberation that's always just been here. Lens essence should be recognized as the same in all three states of wakefulness, dream, and deep sleep. For one who recognizes the witness pervading all three states, there's no more rebirth. So this is a technique known as avasta vichara. So the char means investigation, means inquiry. So sometimes we use like the word atma, the char, inquiry into the self, inquiry into the essence of what you truly are, inquiry into the soul. But we can also conduct inquiry into all sorts of phenomena. One of those sources of, of inquiry is what are called the three states, also known as the avastas, the state of wakefulness, the state of dreaming, and the state of deep sleep. So just by simply reflecting what is it that is aware within all of these three states? And you realize that this, this witnessing consciousness within you that you're experiencing now, that you may have experienced last night as you're having dreams, the awareness was still there. And even when you went into the deep sleep state, Still, there's a faint remembrance. That which remembers. This is, this, this is awareness itself. This is pure consciousness. This is what we call the Atma. And that which transcends the three states. 
And secondly, you can draw your attention to this, which is conscious of all experience, but is untouched by any experience. Then you will begin to realize this other way of perception, what is known as Turya, or the fourth state. Waking state is the state of consciousness. The dreaming state, the state of uh, of the subconscious mind and subconscious activity. The deep sleep state, deep unconsciousness is there. But there is something that pervades all three states. And that itself is the Atma. That is what we call it, the Self. Pure awareness, the essence of what you are. When you can recognize the Atma, by inquiring into the three states and seeing what is it that is witnessing all the experiences of the three states and come to recognize it, automatically you enter this other mode of perception. This other mode is known as the fourth state. Sometimes they call it like super-consciousness. It's not just simply normal, mundane consciousness, like waking consciousness. It's not subconscious activity. It's not unconscious. It's something else. Superconscious, if we can talk about it in that way. So this is another way of remembrance. Reflecting. Who is it that is experiencing all these things? What within me sees every experience, no matter what state I'm in? Being one, Supreme Consciousness is present in all beings. Though one, it appears as many, like the moon shining in various bodies of water. So this consciousness, this pure awareness, is not limited to the body. It exists everywhere. It's within you. It's also all around you. It's, it's within me. It's within it's within the river, within the trees, within the air, all the elements of nature are pervaded by consciousness. Yet, though this consciousness is one, it appears as all these many, 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 many different forms. They say in the same way that this one moon reflects in the ocean, in this pond, in this river, in this glass of water. Honestly, the same moon is still just one fundamental thing. So beyond all the diversity that we see, there's, there's oneness, there's this principle of Brahman, of supreme reality that exists in all beings. Then they begin to try to describe this experience in terms of the metaphor of space. And they say, in the same way that space in a jar is not moved when the jar is moved, so too the individual self is suspended within consciousness. So that's a little bit abstract. So imagine that we have a jar. We were to look in, there's an empty jar. We look inside the jar, the space is there. We move the jar, the jar has moved, the space is the same. Same for, for our very own self. Our jar is our body. Whether the body is here, or whether the body moves and is somewhere else, consciousness is unmoved. So it doesn't really fundamentally matter what you're doing or where you are. 
this is why you can practice mindfulness, why you can practice um, uh, remembrance of the natural state, no matter where you are, whether the body is still, whether the body is lying down, whether it's walking, consciousness is ever present. And once you learn to recognize it, you can invoke it or recognize it, no matter where you are or what you're doing. You're continually suspended within it. Like a drop of water suspended within the ocean. Just like the space in a jar is not different from the space outside the jar, so too consciousness pervades all. So again, the same metaphor. We have a jar, and we have the space inside the jar, and then we have the space all around or outside the jar. Still space. Likewise, the consciousness that you feel as your very own self is not limited to your jar, it's not limited to your body. It's the same consciousness that's inside me, that's inside her, within the trees, within the air, within the birds, within the honking horns, within the chainsaws, within, <laughs> within everything. Learn to recognize it in all things and be free. Yeah. pervades everything. The solution of separation is only the idea of being disconnected from the source. By removing this false concept, ignorance is destroyed and one realizes one's own self in the unity of all. Let's go through that one again. The illusion of separation is only the idea of being disconnected from the source. Now what is your source? Consciousness is your source. The moment you're conscious or you're aware that you're conscious, the disconnect has ceased. The illusion of separation has ceased. By removing this feeling of separation, this small concept, all ignorance is destroyed. And one realizes one's own self in the unity of all. And then I believe this is the final line of Amrita Bindu. Oh no, it's not even close. The sacred sound Om originates in the original silence. When all other thoughts revolve into, resolve into the silence, only consciousness remains. The wise one should meditate upon pure consciousness if she desires liberation. So this one is very self-explanatory. Sacred sound dome originates in silence. And all thoughts resolve into the silence, only consciousness will remain. The wise one should then meditate only upon pure consciousness if she wishes liberation, she wishes to be free. So see what it feels like to meditate upon just pure consciousness. Exactly. It's natural liberation, spontaneous liberation. Two kinds of knowledge should be acquired. First, the indirect knowledge of the concepts regarding consciousness. And then second, the direct experiential knowledge of consciousness itself. 
Having mastered the conceptual knowledge, the direct experience of consciousness remains. So this is one way of helping us understand the path. First, we need to learn a little bit about Vedanta. We need to get some basic understanding, some, some of the basic ideas, basic concepts, basic ways of practicing, and even master that intellectual understanding of the path so we're clear what the Dharma is. But once the instructions are clear to us, we need to apply them. We really need to apply them into our own lives. So when you're instructed to be mindful, okay, you can learn all the different methods of mindfulness. You can learn, I can use my breath, I can use a mantra, I can use the gap in between thoughts, I can drop into the heart, I can, I can you know, so many different techniques are available. But so long as one does not apply them in the present moment to liberate themselves, from the illusion and the ignorance of samsara, then this remains. That practical application needs to needs to be um, emphasized. So after due study of the Vedas, the wise one, who solely intent on acquiring self-realization, should discard the Vedas altogether, as one who seeks to obtain rice discards its husk. So now you've learned all these ideas, all these concepts in the Vedas, you're studying Upanishad, you've learned some of the concepts that are essential there, then it tells you forget everything you've learned. Forget all of it. If you're wanting to get the essence, which is what a rice farmer is trying to do from a stalk of grass, he just wants the essence, that which is full of nutrition, that which is full of life force, that which sustains and nourishes them. It's little little small little grain of rice within this big big you know stalk that's there you need to discard the husk you, know, you need to get rid of, of the knowledge you need to get rid of all that you've learned and you need to just simply come back to your natural state and then maintain this recognition sustained abidance in the self we call it nididhyasana Self-abidance, first self-recognition, realizing what the self truly is, and then second, maintaining your awareness here, and then just staying here, and letting this experience become more and more familiar, and letting this experience expand itself. In the same way that cows of many different colors all produce only white milk, so too the wise regard consciousness as the milk of the many-branched Vedas. They regard consciousness as the milk and the many-branched Vedas as the cows. So it's not just Vedas, it's all knowledge. No matter what the source of that knowledge is, if it's spiritual knowledge, whether from, from the Buddha Dharma, or the Vedic Dharma, or Jain Dharma, Sikh Dharma, Christian Dharma, Islamic Dharma, Taoist Dharma, anything that points you towards truth, it fundamentally, everyone's talking about the same one thing. And you're just coming back home to your natural state, to your naturally free and liberated divine self. Yeah? So no matter what tradition or practice or technique, when follows, ultimately, our, all of our destination is just to come back home, just to come back to where we always are. 
Like butter hidden within milk, pure consciousness resides in every being. This needs to be realized by continual self-abidance. So in order to extract you know, the nutrition from you know, like the, the fatty, delicious, if you're vegetarian or, or not a vegan, this is the old metaphor, the delicious you know, essence of the milk is the butter, which turns into ghee. In this case, they talk about ghee, not butter. But many, many people don't know about ghee. So in order to extract the essence of milk, you know, we need to churn it. It needs to be ruffled and it needs to agitate intensely. And then after this initial agitation, which is the metaphor for sadhana, for this deep struggle to tame the mind, to control the mind, to begin to direct its awareness. And the ultimate aim of all these different techniques of yoga and meditation are simply to bring the mind back to the present moment. Yeah, that is the essence of all these techniques. And when you've come back to the essence, you've extracted. And when you've come back to the presence, you've extracted the essence of all spiritual practices. Yeah. And this essence, pure consciousness, resides in all living beings. So what everyone is looking for, and yet they don't know it. Through continual self-abidance, maintaining awareness of the present moment for longer periods of time, this consciousness will, will grow. Your recognition of it, your insight into it will become deeper and deeper, more and more profound. Taking hold of the sacred wisdom, the wise one, through continual self-abidance, will burn through all illusions and realize the supreme consciousness itself. The wise will have the direct experience that I am everything. And so, in the wisdom path, no effort is to be made towards achieving samadhi. The only effort, if you need to make effort, is to maintain awareness of the present moment and maintain awareness from moment to moment. Yearning for samadhi, yearning for the supreme, you know, the supreme experience of you know merging into the absolute, is going to hold you back. All that needs to be cultivated, if you're going to feel like the need to do something on the wisdom path, is to maintain awareness of the self and abide in the self, moment after moment after moment. And if you just simply practice this, just being yourself, and just being here with yourself as you are, not needing to be any way different than what you actually are, and not wanting to experience anything else other than what you're experiencing right now, eventually the state of samadhi will dawn upon you without any effort of your own side to attain or achieve samadhi. And that samadhi experience will give you this feeling of, of complete, of the complete interconnectedness of all of life. Now you will not feel like a separate part of it or an isolated center of consciousness within this larger whole. You'll feel like you're the, the entire whole. You'll feel connected to every single particle of creation. 
in the final line of Amrita Bindu Upanishad, that in whom resides all beings, and who resides in all beings, is the giver of grace to all, the supreme soul of the universe, the limitless being. I am that. listening to this episode, and we invite you to visit www.blooming-lotus-yoga.com backslash drops of nectar to learn more through Ramananda's books, articles, online courses, or by attending retreats. May you be happy, peaceful, and free.